Hi, everyone. I'm Raj Kumar, president and editor-in-chief of DevX. This week, we'll be breaking down the big headlines in global development and bringing in some top experts to help us do it. If you want to follow along with the stories we're talking about, check out devx.com and subscribe to our daily newsletter, The Newswire. There's a link in the description. Follow us along on Twitter, and you can see many of the stories we're talking about today. And we'd love to hear what you think. This is This Week in Global Development. This week, I'm joined by my colleague, Adva Saldinger, who's a senior reporter at DevX. Uh, Adva, as I think all of our listeners know by now, they must know your byline, Adva, covers all things related to development finance and lots of things related to U.S. government. So we're going to get get to you in a second here hear what's going on in D.C. these days. Um, and we're also joined by my friend Soji Adei, who, again, a well-known name in the global health and global development community. Uh, Soji, great to have you here on the, on the conversation today. Thank you, Raj. And uh, it's great to speak with you again. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. You, you, of course, people know you from being the director of global health at the World Bank. You had a long career at the World Bank. You, um, you know, have been a really outspoken leader on global health and the ways it needs to decolonize and change and localize. Um, and you, you have been an important advisor to many organizations that work in this space. So it's great to, to hear your take today. But Adva, I've got to start with you because things in Washington are in a state of, I guess, chaos, maybe a generous term. The Speaker of the House uh, was ousted after barely being able to extend the government for, um, you know, the government budget for, I guess, 45 days. So we're now facing down the barrel of maybe a, a government shutdown sometime in November. Where do things stand? This is a major issue for people in global development um, because so much funding comes through the U.S. government. Definitely a state of chaos, right? I think next week we'll see if uh, Republicans can elect a Speaker of the House. The The challenge in the current um, structure is that the House can't really do business without a Speaker. Uh, so that means that one major body of government uh, is basically ground to a halt until this leadership issue is resolved. And that makes meeting um, that November budget deadline that much harder. Um, and it was, I mean, you know, I was talking to people throughout the day Friday, everyone anticipated we would have a government shutdown as did we. In fact, I wrote a whole story about what that would mean for global development um, and happy to talk through some of those details. But the reality is that shutting down the government is actually quite costly um, and it could bring you know, programs to a halt. And it's, and it's really disruptive for funding global health, for predictability. Um, and the other thing I'll add is that we have not only seen the traditional budget process sort of break down. We're not in what one would call normal order. The system is not working like it should. We're not getting the budget bills on time. They're much delayed, which delays allocations. It delays decisions about where money's going. And that means programs can't get started when they should. And in some cases, you know, we saw, you know, I was getting reports last week from folks that, you know, billions of dollars were held up through a budget process where members of Congress were putting holds while they asked additional questions. But this meant that funding was delayed many more months. And there was real concern that that funding would expire before the end of the fiscal year. Now, the good news on that front um, is that what I heard from folks this week is that most of those holds, almost all the holds on foreign aid were lifted. So that money, which was actually fiscal year 2022 money, can now flow to programs. Um, but we really face a, an impasse now. And the challenge here 
is that even, you know, if the House gets itself organized, we have a leader, the gulf between what we're what we saw the, in the House passed state and foreign operations bill uh, for foreign assistance and what the Senate has proposed is really wide. It's about $10 billion. There are a whole lot of policy issues, really substantive differences in these two versions of legislation. And it's going to be really hard for lawmakers to come to any sort of compromise. And that's why, you know, in, you know, clock is ticking, what, 40, less than 40 days now, we're going to see, you know, probably come down to the wire if there can even be an agreement. Yeah, that that makes sense, Adva. I mean, it is I got to imagine for people who are trying to organize, you know, initiatives, programs, projects that are already challenging in the environments and circumstances they're trying to work in to then have this thing hanging over their head where they don't know if the funding is actually going to be there or is it not going to be there on time or do they have to spend it faster than they intended because of some fiscal year issue. Uh, I mean, Soji, I'd love to hear your take on this because you've worked on so many initiatives, uh, you know, over the years, not anything direct with the U.S. government, but, you know, a lot of funding, largest funder in the world for global health is, is the U.S. government. What do you think this dysfunction says or means to people who work on these issues every day? Thanks, Raj. Uh, I think it says uh, quite a few things. Uh, first, but let, let, let's stand back uh, for, for, one, for one moment and just look at the whole range of uh, things going on on the development landscape, and then I'll I'll focus specifically on uh, on the U.S. situation. So there's a country realities in the low income countries and middle income countries. Uh, they are the immediate reflections on what happened at the United Nations General Assembly meetings and the various declarations. Uh, they are the forthcoming World Bank IMF annual meetings in Morocco. And of course, uh, not to be forgotten, the unresolved mess uh, regarding Gavi and COVAX uh, financing, uh, etc. Now, amidst all of that is what is happening in the US. What does it mean? What it means is that in the short run, the government dysfunction, or shall I say, the the dysfunction in that part of the U.S. government in the, the House of Representatives sends a signal to implementers of programs financed directly or affected by the U.S. government that their lives are about to get perhaps a little more challenging in the short run because of lack of predictability. And when you are running a program in a low-income or middle-income country, quite often the day-to-day -day realities are challenging enough. And it is distinctly unhelpful to have superimposed on those uh, the kinds of theatrics uh, going on uh, in, in Congress that will add to the stress of implementers and their managers out on the front lines. So that's the first one. The second one, uh, is, in my view, equally important and perhaps arguably more important in the medium to long term. And the signal this sends to governments in low and lower middle income countries uh, is that they need to find ways of standing on their own feet and not continue to be dependent on the, what I call the kindness of strangers. Because when the viability 
of your programs in your own country uh, depend on decisions made thousands of miles away by politicians who are not accountable to your own citizens, then you're setting yourself up to be continuously vulnerable to these kind of uh, shenanigans that are going on now. Yeah, and especially in global health. I mean, these are you know fundamental life and death issues. Nothing is more important for national security. And so if you don't know until you find out from you know a reporter like Adva whether a hold has been lifted by some random member of Congress on the other side of the world, whether or not you're going to have the medications your people need, it's a it's a big it's a big deal. Advai, you said you've looked into what some of the implications are. Should we land where everyone expects we will land, which is some kind of a government shutdown, right? I mean, it, no one know, can know for sure. Maybe there will be an, an incredible moment of bipartisan unity that will happen, but it seems very unlikely that we will get through with a new budget in 45 days or so. So what is it? what are the implications for people listening who work on all these issues? Yeah, so a couple thoughts. One, we could get another continuing resolution. There is also a deadline of the end of the year that was set up by the budget agreement that was made in the spring. And I believe what that basically says is that if Congress can't come up with a budget agreement by the end of the year, they can't pass their budget bills, um, there's going to be a 1% funding cut across the board for all programs. Um, now, probably Congress wants to actually determine how funding will be. And actually a 1% cut, given that the House is proposing a 14% cut on uh, you know, foreign affairs funding, is probably not that bad for the development community, but it would be a real breakdown in the functioning of the U.S. government. So that's one, one point to make. Um, now, you know, the length of a shutdown actually has really significant implications on its impact. If you would get a government shutdown that lasted for four or five days, it might not have that significant or deep impacts. But if you start to stretch out, uh, you know, if it goes for the, the last shutdown went for 35 days, for example, and I talked to um, Catholic Relief Services, and they said that one of the things they saw is they, they had a program um, that basically they were waiting on funding for. It was a project, a food security project in Malawi. It supported over 250,000 households and they couldn't get the funding on time. Now, CRS is a big international NGO. Um, they ended up being able to cover these costs through their own independent funding. But this would have really major implications for smaller organizations, and especially at a time when USAID is pushing to work with more local organizations as part of its you know, big localization push, those smaller partners would find it much more challenging, if not impossible, to do the same thing, to keep a program running. And so then what you might see is projects stop, right? The funding runs out, the project stops or you see a mismatch in when you need the funding and when it arrives. So you can't just say, you know, start an agriculture program three months late because maybe you've missed the, you know, the planting season. And then the funding isn't useful because you've missed the opportunity to use it. A long-term shutdown would also delay like new contracts. So that could mean, you know, delays in shipping food, which often takes months to arrive. So I had one person tell me, you know, one of the implications is that it delays us from being able to get assistance to people who are hungry now, and they might not be able to wait, you know, for a politicized shutdown to end, right? And, and that's the thing. We're dealing with pe immense needs all around the world right now. And so disrupting the process 
you know, means maybe people won't get the food they need. It means programs won't work. On a practical level, um, USAID isn't allowed to make any new um, allocations. Existing funding can continue to be used. So certain multi-year programs where they get allocations for several years, those would probably be able to continue. Um, there is likely an exception for Ukraine-related funding, so that could continue. But in general, USAID can't make new commitments or allocate funding. Um, staff can't travel. They can't make new hires at a time when the agency is trying to staff up. Um, and, you know, it, it creates a lot of challenges. There are some exceptions around protecting life um, and government property and records, or if it's deemed essential to national security. But a lot of, um, you know, USAID employees, probably about 3,000 of the 4,300 employees at USAID would be placed on furlough um, if, if funding runs out during a shutdown. And, and so it really would grind to a halt sort of the mechanisms of, um, of the U of USAID and of um, you know, the way that the U.S. does, you know, foreign aid and, and foreign policy. So it could have really damaging impact. The world is facing an unprecedented global food crisis. Here at DevEx, we're following the state of food insecurity around the world and the solutions that are needed to overcome it. I'm Teresa Welsh, senior reporter, and I'm also the author of DevEx Dish, a free weekly newsletter bringing you a comprehensive look at everything that matters in the world of food. Each Wednesday, DevX Dish will be your guide through the interlocking policy, infrastructure, climate, agriculture, nutrition, and human rights issues remaking the way food is grown and distributed. Visit devx.com newsletters to subscribe and get your weekly update on the race for a sustainable global food system. Another unrelated story we published this week, but that gets to this question of, you know, how do you want to run a major program? Certainly not stopping and starting and stop, start and stopping again. Uh, but, you know, we had a reporter of ours, Sarah Jerving, who's a senior reporter at DevEx in East Africa, who, you know, put a story out that found that a major program um, that was funded by the African Centers for Disease Control and the MasterCard Foundation is a $1.5 billion program that was originally designed to deliver COVID-19 vaccines across Africa, well, that it came to an abrupt halt. And she heard from a number of employees. It, it turns out quite a number of employees were not being paid. Um, some in Nigeria said so they hadn't been paid for four to six months. Um, so it just kind of tells the story, although it's not related at all to the U.S. government shutdown, it just tells the story of when a program has to be shut. In this case, it was for like a snap audit and a spending halt. And she explores some of the reasons and details in her piece. But I think it just underlines what can happen when major programs in global health or other areas of development aren't allowed to proceed according to their plan and their schedule. And as you say, it can turn out in the end to maybe be even more expensive than, uh, than finding a way to kind of do business as usual and make changes in a more reasonable flow of work. I don't know if, if you, Adva, or Soji saw that piece and have any reactions to it. Uh, like I say, it's just one example, but maybe points to a bigger a bigger story. I did, and one of the things that that struck me, and and this is where there is sort of a tie to you know USAID's push on localization, is you know a, a lot of this funding was um, given to local organizations who were trying to respond in real time in 
emergency situations to get vaccines in people's arms. Um, and I think there is a question there about does there are there lessons around, you know, sort of effective localization? Did there need to be some additional training and support for some of those implementers or just better communication with them um, around what the expectations were and what is okay in an emergency? Where can you say, okay, we're not going to do that particular procurement process because we know we need things to move faster. And so it was striking to me that um, she quoted Gitindi Gitahi, um, who's the CEO of AMREF in the story, and said that it's sort of normal to have some challenges like this due to sort of capacity development um, issues. And so I thought that was an interesting piece of the story that um, that, that stood out to me. Yeah, if I might chime in here, um, Adra and Raj. So back to the, the first part of the discussion in terms of the disruptions or potential disruptions in U.S. funding. I think there's a bigger picture here. And I want to tie this to some of the other stories that have been reported, uh, well, very well reported by DevEx, uh, regarding fluctuations and uncertainties in uh, development finance for health by the, U- by the U.K., the United Kingdom. And quite often, the reaction to this have been a lot of uh, what I will call weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth uh, among different communities. So if you take what's happened and continues to happen on the UK front, and you look at what is, ha- what is now happening in the US, um, again, what is coming through is, is the following. Is the right reaction or is the sensible reaction uh, really to go into a panic and complain about uh, about them? Maybe so. I'm not entirely convinced, and this is why. First, when you run a program uh, in low- or middle-income countries, and perhaps elsewhere, predictability of funding is important. Uh, but so uh, equally important is the reliability of that source of funding. And this brings us to how much of what is being funded by the countries themselves. So let's Let's take some hard numbers here with a focus on, uh, on Africa, for example. So in sub-Saharan Africa, it's particularly dependent on development assistance for health when compared to other regions. The external expenditure uh, was some 22% of, of current health expenditure um, in the WHO's Africa region. And that was far in excess of uh, what it was elsewhere. Okay, if you if you focus somewhere uh, somewhere on malaria, for example, you'll find that out of the three point three billion dollars globally invested in in, in in 2020, international financing was more was two thirds of that, and seventy nine percent of that went to the west uh, went to the Africa region. So, what does this tell us? That was the situation two decades after the Abuja Declaration, when African leaders pledged to allocate more of their own budgets to health. What this is saying is is the story of abdication of responsibility by the country leaders themselves. And so I want to turn this on its head. I don't think the problem, the fundamental problem lies in in the House of Congress in Washington, D.C. And I don't believe that the fundamental problem lies in Westminster or, 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 or in Whitehall in London. The fundamental problem 
lies in the capital cities of the African countries themselves, where the countries, the leaders, have to various extents abdicated responsibility for financing the health of their own people. Which brings me to the question of USAID localization or not. In my view, the, the localization thing at USAID is just a matter of cosmetics at best, or perhaps convenient theatrics, okay? Because it is attempting to put, uh, to use the phrase that we like on this side of, this, uh, of the Atlantic, it's putting lipstick on a pig. The business model of USAID is fundamentally wrong. It is set up to develop American contractors around Washington, D.C., not for global development. And localization fundamentally doesn't change that. So the fundamental change that is required is for Congress to pass a law taking the, those contractors out of the equation as the default setting for USAID uh, financing and to put a sunset clause on USAID financing for health across the world. Now, on to the question of uh, the MasterCard Foundation and the Africa CDC. Yes, I read that. And uh, I've also seen a subsequent communication, joint communication by the Africa CDC and the MasterCard Foundation uh, that the, the, continental, the continent-wide uh, exercise uh, is a routine audit and they were working closely with implementation partners to address uh, disruptions. My take on that is, uh, is, is, is multiple. First, again, there's something to be said for predictability of funding. And this is one of the responsibilities of financiers. So I, I hope that they will jointly look into that. Second, um, I want to recognize their own take that at this stage of the COVID pandemic, they were taking a pause, looking at uh, doing a program-wide review and seeking to recalibrate for the future. So there is something to be said for that. A third point uh, is the need uh, to really ensure that the findings of their exercise are documented and made public for two reasons. One is the interest of transparency of the exercise itself. And second uh, is the interest of continued credibility uh, for potential financiers in the future. I think uh, all of those are important. Back to you. This is why I love to have you on, on Soji, because... You bring such a fresh take to these issues. Everything you said is, is spot on about the communication that we got from the Africa CDC and MasterCard Foundation. And they also, it's important to point out, mentioned that they are going to make payments um, as they try to resolve this issue so that the people who are waiting for pay will get paid, uh, which is obviously a, a key thing. I, I want to ask you, Soji, as well about the World Bank, because that's kind of the other big story in many ways connected to the U.S. Congress and U.S. funding story. You know, as aid levels are plateauing, you mentioned the UK, we've been talking about the US, but you could stretch this out to many other countries in the in the Western world. You know, donor bilateral aid is plateauing, in some cases going down. And so there's much more excitement than ever about what the World Bank might be able to step up and do. Uh, we had a story this week about Ajay Banga, of course, the president with a lot of excitement around the new president of the World Bank. And he came out and said, we can you know, quote unquote, stretch the balance sheet, you know, sweat the balance sheet, as people say, and, and generate another $125 billion. 
Um, this is in advance of next week's annual meeting in Morocco. DevX will be there as well, you know, lots of other people in this community. And I guess I'd love your take, Soji, as somebody who spent a long time at the World Bank. How do you think Ajibanga is doing? And do you think the World Bank can really transform itself in a way that it is needed given what's happening with the other Western donors these days? Thanks. Um, thanks, Raj. I think this is where I'll recall the eternal response to the question uh, of the effects of the French Revolution. And if I remember correctly, uh, the, the response the man gave was, it was too soon to tell. And that was many years after uh, the revolution itself. So in terms of Mr. Banga at the World Bank, my understanding is summarized as follows. So far, so good. I think he's brought uh, a fresh perspective to the institution. And I think it's only fair that he be given the chance uh, uh, to take a shot at it and see how much better he can make the institution. That said, for the forthcoming uh, World Bank IMF annual meetings in Morocco, I think you should keep eyes on five strands of discussions. And they, they are overlapping. They're, they're, not, they're not separate. But let's divide them into five. Uh, the first one is on uh, financing but uh, multilateral uh, multilateral development financing itself, and as you've heard, uh, Mr. Banga say he was seeking to uh, nudge the bank in the direction of squeezing out another hundred billion dollars uh, over the next ten years. That comes on top of the previous twenty-five. Interestingly, the same uh, approach has come out of the Asian Development Bank, also around a hundred billion dollars. So it's very interesting uh, to to see that convergence. Under that financing uh, issue, for the geopolitics, uh, there are four concerns. One is the imperative of moving more money or lending more money. Uh, a second one is taking on more risk while preserving the AAA credit rating. And there's a fourth one, which is uh, the largest shareholders uh, in the World Bank do not will rather not see a change in the balance of power in the short run. And that is why there might be an aversion to um, a massive capital increase in the short term in case uh, certain parties or certain countries end up having proportionately more power, especially China. So that's financing. The second one is climate change, all that comes with it. How do you really finance uh, the massive investment needed for mitigation and adaptation, especially in low and lower middle income countries in a way that is fair and equitable, since they did not proportionately pump out the carbon that is now roiling us, roiling everybody across the world. And how do you also adjust for the fact that, yes, let's mention the H word, the hypocrisy or perceived hypocrisy of those who would like to push development banks to stop funding any carbon-emitting project in the global south without similar enthusiasm for doing so in the global north. Well, in fact, in some countries in the global north, they're opening up coal mines and they're more than happy to keep uh, pushing for uh, uh, fossil fuel exploration. So there is both the hypocrisy and the perceived hypocrisy there. A third one is the question of pandemics. 
and they were going to pick up from where the UN left off uh, last week. Uh, you probably, uh, you, well, not probably, you tuned into uh, the political declaration last week, which frankly had no teeth uh, a couple of weeks ago at the UNGA. At the um, I think that was a missed opportunity, by the way, to agree on a global threats council at the level of heads of state and heads of government. By pushing that onto the negotiations in Geneva, it, the risk is that it, it's going to the lowest common denominator, which is the World Health Assembly, which is full of ministers of health. And I've not met anyone who believes that the World Health Assembly is then going to have a, a binding influence on heads of state and heads of government. So I think that was really a missed opportunity. A fourth one, uh, which is which is going to be front and center, uh, consists of the dismal prospect for short-term economic growth in low- and middle-income countries, or if you want to so designate uh, emerging markets and developing economies. Uh, given what is going on with inflation, with the debt, uh, debt burden uh, that they have, and of course, um, the thousand-pound gorilla in the room is, is number five, the consequences of, uh, of Russia's ongoing war in Ukraine. So, those five are going to be front and center. Many of the things will be said. Uh, many of them will be written in the lines. Quite a few of them will be between the lines uh, of discussions uh, coming up next week. Back to you. Yeah, I think what's fascinating in particular is just how important the World Bank has suddenly become. I mean, it's always been an important institution, but it does feel like we have more presidents and prime ministers in their prepared remarks on whatever topic you can think of mentioning the World Bank, mentioning the the rest of the MDB system, and everybody's looking to the leader, really, in the World Bank for the way forward. And so I, I can't remember another time when an annual meeting had as much attention and focus as I think this one does. Um, Advaz, we're getting close to wrapping up our conversation today. Were there any other stories that stood out for you this week that you, that you wanted to mention? Um, I, I mean, one other thing that I think is... Um, worth mentioning is, is obviously a story that, you know, we've been following at DevEx for, you know, most of this year, uh, which is the effort to reauthorize PEPFAR. Um, and I think, you know, the PEPFAR reauthorization expired um, Saturday night at midnight. Um, I, I think there were hopes at the beginning of this year that they would be able to get through a five-year clean reauthorization. It's what happened the last time um, PEPFAR was up for reauthorization, and then it very quickly became clear this year that the PEPFAR reauthorization was going to, you know, become mired in abortion and gender politics, and that sort of derailed um, efforts to, you know, just reauthorize the program on on the current, um, you know, sort of based on based on the current authorities. And um, you know, it, it doesn't mean that PEPFAR can't operate. It continues to be funded. It can continue to operate. I do think it sends. Um, sort of a, a negative message about the U.S. commitment to PEPFAR. And it's a bit unclear at this point um, whether we will get a, a reauthorization and how long that reauthorization will be, if there will be other requirements. I think it's worth noting that there are a couple issues in the authorizing legislation that do sunset. Um, and so those have sunset and those include provisions around, you know, the amount of money that PEPFAR will spend on, um, you know, children and, and orphans. Um, and, and 
you know, I, I don't think PEPFAR is going to make dramatic changes overnight to how it spends some of that money. But um, there, there are priorities that I think were hard fought, fought and passed through authorization battles that have sunset at this point. Um, and, and so I think, it, you know, that continues, I think, to be a live issue. I know that, you know, advocates are working hard to try to push that um, re- reauthorization forward. But obviously, any of those efforts are, you know, sort of further hampered by the, you know, ongoing chaos. Yeah, to me, it just underlines the fact that we're in a new era, right? That so as Soji described, we're in a very different time. There was this kind of golden era of global development when you could count on PEPFAR to not be politicized. You could count on this to be something that Republicans and Democrats would get together and say, this is important. This is a priority. This is something we can be proud of. Um, and you just can't count on those things anymore. And I think it does lead to you know, where Soji is going, Soji, where you went so brilliantly in your book, Global Health and Practice, um, to say, okay, well, if you're an African leader or a leader of any lower middle income country, um, you need to start thinking about how you're going to generate enough domestic resources to fund these priorities yourself, because you can't count on the international order. This new moment, um, it's not such a smooth transition from one to the other. And in the end, you know, sometimes the poorest people will be the ones who suffer uh, in this, yeah, in this kind of great power competition, yeah. and in this this big political shift. Yeah, if I j- just just one just one quick point on on PEPFAR, um, I think there are three things, in my opinion, uh, that need to be considered here. Uh, the first one is that overall PEPFAR has done a lot of good. The second one is that the this whole preconditioning of its reauthorization on the domestic fight about about abortion is just wrong. It's inappropriate and it's actually silly. Okay, uh, and there there should be clean reauthorization of it. And I want to give a shout out to the inspired choice of Dr. John Nkenga Song uh, to lead that exercise uh, here. A third one that I think is important is as there is passage of a clean reauthorization, there also needs to be a very explicit conversation around the question, is PEPFAR forever? So maybe it's seven years from now, maybe six years from now, there needs to be an explicit transition plan, smooth and explicit transition plan when countries will step up and PEPFAR gradually uh, tip us off, but not in the uh, the very unseemly and inappropriate way that it's currently going on in Congress right now. I, I was just going to say that I think you're you're spot on, Raj, because I think we've seen traditionally bipartisan issues, and it's important to remember that obviously PEPFAR was you know a Republican you know president initiative. Um, but I think we've seen it on other issues like girls' education, which have been politicized and, and issues where you in the past could have easily found um, sort of bipartisan ground. And I think that's something that we've certainly um, certainly been been tracking um, at DevEx is sort of how, how that dynamic is, is changing. And I think one other point is on this sort of creating the domestic resource mobilization. I have talk to a lot of people about development finance, right? And about mobilizing private finance into these markets. And one of the things that, you know, there's a lot of conversations about various tools. How do you protect against 
foreign exchange risk? When do you spend money on, on that? How do you deal with all these other financial challenges? And one thing that struck me in, in a conversation that actually we had at our event at, at uh, around the UN General Assembly is that one of the panelists who actually for a long time worked at IFC and now works in the private sector said, you know, look, fundamentally, we have to also be looking in the medium to long term because you don't solve a lot of these sort of private sector challenges without addressing the building of local markets. So it's about doing that domestic resource mobilization, building those local markets, capitalizing on local financial flows to invest locally. That's really going to make a difference, not only in you know governments investing their resources, but in the local private capital systems growing and investing resources in those markets as well. Thank you all for joining us. And uh, Soji, thank you especially for joining us and sharing all your uh, really important thoughts. Uh, and, you know, stay tuned. I'm sure there'll be plenty to discuss next week. Please follow our coverage for all things around the World Bank meetings next week. Thanks, all. Thank you very much, Adra. And thanks, everyone. This has been This Week in Global Development. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe using the link in the description. To get even more coverage and analysis on the most pressing development issues of the day, become a DevX Pro member by going to devx.com membership and signing up. Thank you for listening and see you next week.